incredible, incredible thought. That you can take our lives as messy as they are and make something incredible and spectacular. God, I I ask today, Lord, that you would speak your truth into our hearts and into our minds. That we would understand how much, how deeply you love us. God, that you love us not for what we can do, not for any good that's in us, but you love us just because you made us and we're your sons and daughters. Father, this morning, help us to find hope in Jesus. Hope that, that lives can be restored, that they can be renewed and remade, that we can have fresh starts. God, hope for eternity with you and your presence. Speak to us, Father God. Live in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We are so glad that you're here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If today's your first time at North Point, a special welcome to you. If you've been here lots and lots and lots of years, a welcome to you as well. The guys are going to come down with the welcome books just now. Um, If you can fill those out, we can stay in touch that way. That would be spectacular. There's going to be an opportunity to, to give in just a little bit as well. As God has blessed, um, as he's been generous with you, just uh, we encourage you to give back to him and let that be an offering. Uh, We've just been singing about it, about God's ability to make everything new, to take um, lives that are wrecks and to make something special out of them. Here's, Here's the question to start the message today. How, how deep is God's forgiveness? How deep is God's forgiveness? It's, it's easy, I think, for us intellectually to say, oh, God's forgiveness is forever. It's limitless. It happens. You know, God, God has the ability to forgive anything and everything. But in our hearts... Sometimes when we look at other people, sometimes when we look at our own lives, that question is more troublesome. How deep is God's forgiveness? Uh, I've known two guys in my life, two men, that were convicted of murder. The first was a guy whose brother actually committed the murder. He... um, in an act of rage with two other guys, took a knife to a guy's throat, killed him in his arms, and left him out in the woods. The guy that I know was this guy's brother. And in the weeks after that particular murder, the guy that I know helped cover up the crime from the police, did everything that he could to destroy evidence and protect his brother. Ultimately, the, the evidence of the crime became known. This guy's brother was convicted of murder, and the guy that I know was convicted as an accessory after the fact. It was a particularly horrible crime to a government employee, 
And he went to a federal maximum security penitentiary for a whole bunch of years. The second guy I know was a teenager who took a pistol and in his home shot his father and his stepmother. Went to bed that night. Got up the next morning, walked over the bodies and drove his dad's motorcycle to school. Um, It was a number of days before that crime was discovered. And ultimately, um, he went to a maximum security prison for a horrible crime. How, How deep is God's forgiveness? That's a a question for us, because for many of us, we hear about crimes like that and we think, does God does God have the right to forgive people who have committed crimes like that? Does God have the ability to forgive crimes like that? How deep is God's forgiveness? That's essentially the heart of today's message. We're going to take a look at a, at a character whose name in, in um, Hebrew was Saul. Um, his name uh, in Latin, in the, in the Roman culture, was Paul. He's the guy who ultimately wrote um, two-thirds of the New Testament. He's, he's a big deal in terms of Christianity. And for those of us who have followed Jesus a long time, when we hear about Paul, when we think about Paul, we kind of dismiss his story and miss the impact of what happened in his life before he came to know Jesus because it was a bad deal. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I, let me just encourage you after you leave the service um, out at the at the kiosk out in the back. There's an opportunity. We, we want to give you a Bible so that you have it and you can make notes in it, take it home. So if you don't have a Bible, please today be sure and get a Bible. If you do have a Bible, um, take it out right now and go to Acts chapter nine. Because we're going to look at the story of Saul, but I'm going to make you work especially hard today, okay? So, um, so go to Acts chapter 9, but then go to Acts chapter 22, and go to Acts chapter 26, and put your fingers in those places, because we're going to read from all three passages. Um, we've, we've said before through this series, through this bold series, that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He's the guy who wrote this, um, the, the biography of the church in the first century, who, who tells the stories. So he gives his perspective and he's going to tell the story of Saul. But in Acts chapter 22, Saul is basically um, in Jerusalem and, uh, and, and in the middle of a, of a near riot, the guards have actually have to come and take him away so that the people don't kill him on the spot. And as he's been t- being taken into the barracks as a prisoner, he stops on the step and tells his story in Hebrew to the crowd in Jerusalem that ultimately uh, uh, re- results in more riot. But he tells his story first person in Acts 22. And we're going to read from that. In Acts chapter 26... Paul is on trial before King Agrippa, one of the rulers of that point in time. And he tells his story again uh, um, in Acts 26. And uh, and we're going to read from all three places. So what's up on screen is going to be from Acts chapter 9. It's going to be Luke's Luke's telling of the story. But I'm going to start in Acts 22. Paul's in Jerusalem. 
And he's with a crowd that's going crazy. And this is what he says in verse three. He's starting in verse three. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a really, really famous Jewish teacher of the time. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death. This way is uh, our words that describe followers of Jesus, the way of Jesus. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. That's his introduction in Jerusalem. Before King Agrippa, he says this, uh, Acts 26, verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. Jump down to verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. This is Luke telling the story in Acts chapter 9. This will be up on screen. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul lays out the case and says, hey, I've got credentials out the wazoo, okay? I, I am as, uh, as committed of a Jew as can be. I was given authority from the chief priests in Jerusalem to go and persecute followers of Jesus because they were um, perverting Judaism. They were making it impure. They had lost track of who God was and, and they were pursuing this other path. It was my duty to persecute them. Back to Acts chapter 22 as he's telling a story in Jerusalem. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Before Agrippa in Acts 26, he says this, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goad is a word that we don't use very often. We talk about goading someone into something. Goad was a stick that was sharp on one end that uh, that, um, was attached to the back of oxen that that goad stuck them in their flank to, to keep the oxen moving. It was a, it was a pain in the rear. Huh. Um, that, that, that's essentially what it was. And the oxen didn't like it because it kept, it kept sticking them. And so the oxen would try and kick that goat off, but the more they kicked it, the deeper in that goat went, the, the more it hurt them. And so uh, before Agrippa, Saul says that this voice says, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to, you're hurting yourself in doing this. Luke says this in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jump back to 22 in Jerusalem. Saul says, and I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Before Agrippa, he says this in Acts 26. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Luke describes it this way in verse five. He says, and he said, who are you? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. Back in Jerusalem, Saul says this, Acts 22. Now those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Luke says this in verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Again, back in Jerusalem, in Acts 22, he continues the story and says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Luke describes the encounter with Ananias this way. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judah look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. When you look at the story of Saul, when you think about what God did in his life, how Jesus came in and changed everything, I think that there are three things that I want us to kind of wrestle with this morning and take a look at. The first is this. What would it take, what would it take for God to get your full, undivided attention? What would it take for God to get your full, undivided attention? Attention. With Saul, it took a, co- a direct confrontation, a, converse, a conversation with Jesus that ultimately re- um, rendered him blindless. It put him completely dependent upon everyone else that was around. What will it take for God to get your full attention? When, when I think about full attention, I think back to being in high school and playing football. Um, uh, I played football in a day where coaches were allowed to um, actually put their hands on players. And, uh, and, and the way that our coach got our attention was that he would reach across and grab a face mask. Got your helmet on with the cage. He would grab your face mask, pull it towards him, look you in the eye and say, listen to me. That to me, that, that was the whole deal in getting my attention. Anybody experienced anything like that? What will it take for God to get your full attention? Because he will use anything in your life to do so. It may be an unemployment line. It may be lying flat on your back looking at the ceiling in a hospital room. It may be a tragedy. It may be a, a, a broken relationship. It may be um, the death of someone that you're close to. And in that moment, God will use that circumstance to get your full attention and to speak to you. What is it that, what is it, that it will take for God to get your full attention so that you can hear his voice? Um, you know, God will use anything to accomplish his will. I, I remember a conversation several years ago when we lived in Northern Virginia. Um, there was a, a, a math teacher in uh, Northern Virginia who um, had a, another math teacher that she was praying for, this guy named Stan. And, um, and she prayed for him and uh, just quietly, not, not, you know, not having lots of spiritual conversations because Stan was an absolutely avowed atheist. He was, he was staunch in um, the way that he made fun of people who follow Jesus. Um, Stan's wife, Heidi, ended up coming to church. And, um, and her faith in Jesus grew. I met Stan for the first time when I baptized Heidi uh, a couple of months later. It was an incredible time. Stan, Stan was honoring his wife, but very skeptical of the whole deal. He, he was an atheist. Why would anyone believe Shannon didn't know that Heidi had been baptized, and, and several weeks later we're talking, and she said, you baptized Heidi, and Stan was there? I said, yeah, we had a great conversation. We talked about Mexican food and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and Shannon said, Stan doesn't have a chance, because I've been praying for him for months. You guys are praying for him. God has brought you into his life, and his wife is praying for him. 
Understand that God will use whatever it takes to get our attention and to draw us to him because he loves us so desperately. Why did it take so much to get Saul's attention? And and how did God get Saul's attention? Saul saw Jesus face to face. It, it was not a thunderbolt, lightning kind of a deal. It doesn't make sense in terms of everything else that happened. Saul saw Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus, the light of the world. He was blind as a result of that. But Jesus spoke to him. Why did it take so much to get Saul's attention? It's, it's because Saul was busy. Anybody busy? It's because Saul was well-intentioned. He was doing things that he thought were really, really important. He was passionate. He talked about um, a a furious rage. He was filled with a furious rage for these people who were followers of Jesus. Paul was consumed with persecuting the church. He didn't have time for Jesus. Saul, Paul, was sincere in what he believed. The only problem was he was sincerely wrong. Understand, it is not enough to be sincere in your pursuit of God if you are sincerely wrong. Let me say that again. It's not enough to be sincere of your pursuit of God if you're sincerely wrong. A patient who takes a prescription that he believes will help him, but is the wrong prescription, will die as a result of that. A math teacher who doesn't care, or a math teacher doesn't care how sincere her students are about their computation. If they use the wrong formula or they make a mistake, they will be sincerely wrong. ISIS is sincere. Atheists are sincere. Even University of Michigan fans are sincere. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you remember this story from a couple of years ago, but two years ago in the state playoffs, state basketball playoffs in Oklahoma, 3A, which is large schools. There were there were two towns playing each other. Um, Hugo and Millwood were the two towns. Uh, There were four seconds left in the game. Hugo was ahead 37 to 36, four seconds left in the game. Millwood has the ball. All I have to do is throw the, throw the pass inbounds, make the play, make the shot. They're going to win. Only problem was Hugo's defense was great. Five seconds was called and possession um, turned around. So Hugo had the ball. They're up by one. They call a timeout, design the play to get the, the ball in. So they throw the ball in, throw it into the backcourt. Trey Johnson takes that pass with two Millwood uh, players pursuing him, drives down the lane, and lays the ball into the net. The only problem was it was in the backcourt, and he made a basket for Millwood as time expired. Millwood, without ever touching the ball, won the game 38-37. to 37. Trey Johnson was sincere and sincerely wrong. What will it take for God to get your intention? To be sincere is not enough. You've got to pursue tr- truth. If you're serious about being a follower of Jesus, what will it take for your life to be transformed? What will it take for Jesus to change things once he has your attention?
It will take an encounter with him. That's what happened for Saul. Saul saw him face to face. Can you imagine what Saul experienced? Can you imagine what Saul experienced? In that moment, when Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's me, Jesus. And Saul realized in an instant that the message he had heard Stephen preach was true. That he had stood idly by while Stephen was stoned. That all of the people that he had that he had um, gathered up and thrown into prison in Jerusalem, that he had persecuted, all the people that he had cast the stone that said, yes, they should die, that he was wrong. Saul, in an instant, realized that he had been sincerely wrong, that he had been misguided completely. What's it take for our lives to be transformed? It takes an encounter with God. It takes an encounter with his word. It takes his people being involved in our lives. God God will do whatever it takes to show himself to us. Paul wrote later in his life, in in his letter to the Romans, um, he, he says that God is all around us, making himself known to us. This is what he says in Romans chapter 1. What, being, what may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain to everyone. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understand from what has been made by the world around us, so that people are without excuse All of us understand and know in our heart that God is there and that he wants to have a relationship with us. What's it take for our life to be transformed? We've got to respond to him. It's not enough to just simply have an experience with God. You know what I mean? Sometimes there's just that experience that happens. You go to a concert, you hear a song, you feel all gushy, you get teary in your eye and you think, oh yeah, that's good. Experiences are great But an experience isn't enough. An experience has to drive us to action. It has to drive us to repentance. For our lives to be changed, for staying power, for God to work in us, it demands repentance. Repentance is a decision to change that's rooted in our intellect but driven by our heart. Those experiences are so terrific. But it has to be rooted in our intellect, in our, in our mental thinking to bring about the lasting kind of change. There are some verses, I, I think it's verse 9 of, of uh, Acts 9, that finishes with these words. It says that, that Saul neither eat nor drank for three days. Um, you know, Saul didn't consciously think, you know, I've been bad. I need to fast, so I'm going to fast. This is what I think happened. I think Saul was so consumed with the reality of what he had done that the thought of food sickened him. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that? Maybe a tragedy in your life, and it's like the last thing in the world I want is food. My stomach is in knots. So much energy there. The thought of food is just repulsive. I think that that's what Paul experienced. I think that's what he went through. And that was the core. I mean, that that was the evidence of the repentance that was there in his heart.
was the result of a broken heart, of a crushed spirit. And so Ananias ultimately comes to him and says, hey, here's the deal, Paul. Here's what you've got to do. Get up, wash away your sins, be baptized. Baptism is a, is a, it's a, a response that God allows us to have that allows us to say yes to him and to experience that freshness, that newness, that clean slate, that fresh start. That's the result of our repentance, as we've talked about. You know, it's, it's been interesting in coming to North Point. I, I've had so many neat opportunities to have people tell me their stories about how they came to know Jesus. And, and lots and lots of people have, have, have echoed language that, that is just interesting language. They said, you know, I, was, I, I raised my hand. I prayed the prayer time after time after time because I never really knew if it took if, it, if, if I got it, anybody been there? You know, a lot, lots of you have to, told me that's your story. Understand that baptism is the tool that's there in Scripture for us to be able to, to plant the flag in the sand that allows us to say, you know what, I choose to follow Jesus completely. It's the marker that God gives us to have sins washed away, fresh start, clean slate, everything new. And it says Ananias came and prayed for him, baptized him, Saul ate, the scales fell off, something like scales fell off his eyes, he he could see again. There was a new beginning, a new birth for him. Last thought that that I just want to kind of take away from this scripture is this. And it, it centers from the story of Ananias. What risk are you willing to take for God? What risk is God calling you to take today? Who is it that you need to stand with? Think about Ananias in this story. Ananias was likely one of the Christians that Saul was coming to persecute. Ananias would have been one of the guys that Saul had on his list to throw into jail, ultimately to be taken to his death. Ananias may have been one of the 70 that Jesus sent out. We we don't know. We don't know whether he was from Jerusalem and had, been, and had gone to Damascus because of the persecution. We, we just don't know. But Ananias understood completely who Saul was. He says to God, he, in, in the vision, he says, God, don't you realize Saul is the guy who's coming to get us, who's going to destroy us, who's going to kill us? Saul raised good questions with God. And you know what? God honored those questions. God said, yes, Saul. Yeah, yeah, Ananias, I know who that is. And I've got a plan for him, and you're a part of the plan. God's big enough to handle any question that we have. But understand this, when God prompts, when you sense the Holy Spirit saying, go do this, listen to him. Um, Over and over and over again, in Christian circles, people will talk about something that God has prompted them to do that's scary and risky. And followers of Jesus will say, are you sure that that's the right thing to do? That's scary. That's dangerous. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's essentially what Ananias said. God, 
this doesn't make any sense at all. It's scary. It's dangerous. There's a risk involved. And God said, you know what? I've got it all under control. What risk is God calling you to take at this time in your life? It may be a little one. It may be a big one. It it may be the kind of thing that causes you to transport your family and to go, um, in the name of Jesus, someplace across the country, across the world. It may be to take a stand at work for, for Jesus. What risk is God calling you to take? And who is God calling you to stand with? Understand that the work of Ananias was integral. It was critical. It was so important to the transformation that took place in the life of Saul. Without Ananias, and ultimately when, when, um, when Saul returns to, to Jerusalem without Barnabas, he's got no ability to minister because God needed to bring some people alongside him. Let me, let me just kind of finish uh, out through 31 in Acts chapter 9. Um, if, uh, it'll be up on screen or, or you can look in your Bibles. For some days he was, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in, in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let me just share two quick thoughts kind of on that last section of Scripture. When you read that, one of the things that's the most striking to me is that Saul after his conversion, after he had encountered with Jesus, immediately begins to tell the story of Jesus and tells it boldly, right? He goes into Damascus in the synagogues and all of a sudden the people that he was trying to convert or that that he was trying to arrest, he's now gone to the other side and he's trying to convert the rest of the Jews that would have been his supporters. What an incredible thing. It doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus. Don't let anyone stop you from telling the story of what Jesus has done in your life. It's never too, uh, it's never too soon to start. It may be that, that your faith is new. Man, tell the story of Jesus. Tell what he's doing in your life. It may be that you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. Tell the story of Jesus, of what he has done in your life. The, the, the last aspect was, is just the last, the last words of verse 31. Um, it says that the church multiplied. 
That language, I think, is significant because if you think about if you've been here for the last 10 or 12 weeks, as we've been through the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, the thing that you've seen is that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to the church. Chapter later, it's 5,000. Um, in in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 6 and then in chapter 8, it talks about their, uh, they were added to their number daily. Um, that the church grew on a daily basis. There's this sense of, of addition that happens. By the end of Acts chapter 9, by verse 31, the growth of the church is multiplication. It's exponential. It's they can't keep track of it any longer because of what God is doing in their midst. That's an incredible thing. How deep is the forgiveness of God? It was enough, it was enough to rescue Saul, right? To, to allow him to change from the life of a murderer, of a persecutor, to become the largest proponent of the story of Jesus in New Testament times, to become probably, next to Jesus, the most influential character in world history. Think about that. God's forgiveness was able to do it all. We've been talking about boldness, about the boldness of the birth of the church. There there are three characters in this story that are incredibly bold. The boldness of Saul in his conversion, in making the change, was incredible. He turned the page and never looked back. The boldness of Ananias and the boldness of Barnabas was equally strong. They took a risk to come alongside this guy who was known as the, the guy who, were, who was going to throw everyone into jail. And their bold steps allowed them to come alongside him and to fortify him, to stand with him, to allow God to use him. The two guys that I mentioned at the beginning of the message, the two guys that I know that are convicted murderers, are both guys um, that, that I've become friends with, They're both guys who are followers of Jesus now. Neither was before. I've had the privilege of of, um, performing both of their weddings, which was an incredible thing. How deep is the forgiveness of God? It's deep enough to cover anything that's happened in your past. Sometimes it's harder for us to forgive ourselves than it is for God. When we, when we sit in a place like this and we start talking about the, the depth of God's forgiveness, we think, yeah, I, you know what? I can see it intellectually about Saul. That makes sense. You know, God had a purpose for him. God can forgive Saul. I'm still not real sure about those guys. Rick is talking about what they did was horrible. Does God have the ability to forgive them? Yeah, probably so. But I don't think that God can forgive me of the affair that I had. I don't think that God can forgive me for what I did to my parents. I don't think that God can forgive me for the, for the horrible things that I've done in the lives of others. That's the reality of where we live, right? How deep is God's forgiveness? It's deep enough to cover everything. Learn that from the story of Saul. Yesterday's paper... Elite Eight headline. There you go. Um, 
In the column that's on the right, I read something that I thought, I just thought, oh man, this is so incredible. Um, the, the article is about a pardon that Governor Snyder gave to a lawyer in Lansing who was convicted of drunk driving. Um, there's a, a, a hubbub about whether or not he should have pardoned this man. But listen, listen to this paragraph that the writer of this account says. Um, Unlike federal pardons, which forgive a crime without erasing the conviction. So when the president pardons people at the end of their term, uh, it takes away the penalty of their conviction, but it but their conviction remains on their record. Got it? Does that make sense? That's what happens with a federal pardon. Unlike federal pardons, which forgive a crime without erasing the conviction, a Michigan pardon blots out of existence the guilt so that in the eye of the law, the offender is as innocent as if he had never committed the offense. Do you get that? The Michigan law blots out of existence the guilt so that in the eye of the law, the offender is as innocent as if he had never committed the offense. That's what Jesus did for us. Do you get that? That's incredible, right? God's ability to forgive covers everything. And it's not just that he says, oh yeah, that's the guy who did that way back then. It's that God sees us holy and perfect. He sees us as his little kids completely redeemed. Today, it's the day that we know as Palm Sunday, right? It, um, this is not a Palm Sunday message, but there's something incredible when you think about the power of Jesus coming to Jerusalem and Jerusalem maybe for the first time getting it, getting who Jesus was. The rest of the week was crazy week. We'll talk about that in a second. But on Palm Sunday... What a moment. Take a look up on screen.